control the messages that you're sending out or you just send random messages and then that that creates effects in the conversation or in the interaction or the conflict that you didn't intend. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema and this is Systema for Life. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, Glenn. How are you? Not bad. Mustn't grumble, as they say back in my homeland. Not too bad. Which is interesting because that doesn't always come across to people. You know, sometimes I go into a Starbucks or a coffee shop or something and, and the guy behind the counter says, hey, how are you doing? And I, said, and I say, mustn't grumble. And they stare at me for a full four seconds because they just didn't expect to hear that. They expect some variant on, yeah, fine. Or how are you? Or sometimes, yeah, it's going. Or something similarly North Carolinian. And when I come out with mustn't grumble, they stare at me like, that's... I can't even compute what that might be. So there's like a communication breakdown that happens right away every single time that happens. The other one that I have is when I try and order water in a restaurant and people say, could I get you anything to drink? And I'll say, yes, I have water, please. And they stare at me again for another four or five seconds. Um, and I try it again. And then sometimes I have to add a D and five R's to it, like water. Or if I say ice water, interestingly, then just putting the ice before it, they're like, oh, there's nothing else you would ice for with ice in front of it before you start. And then I successfully order water. But otherwise, I just do this merry-go-round. I've been here for a decade now, and this still happens to me. So it's very frustrating. And this brings us me to the theme for today, I think, which is on communication. Ah, okay. Well, I just, I just have to interrupt the theme to say when, when, uh, when my daughter was... Uh four years old in preschool, she came home one day, very excited, she said, I've learned how to say water in English. <laughs> and there's a, uh, I said, what, what, how do you say water in English? And she yeah. said, water. Water, yeah. And I said, there apparently there was a British girl named Emma in her class. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. she discovered that it was two completely different words. Yeah, there's, uh, well, there's, there's quite a few, even within the British Isles, there's different ways of pronouncing it. So water is actually probably how you pronounce it if you're central London or from the southeast and you're getting a bit unguttural, you just put an apostrophe where the T was, pretty much. Um, and in a bit, but water is a little bit more upper class and you know, received pronunciation. So there's different ways. Uh, none of these seem um, to be audible mm -hmm. to North Carolinian waiters and, and, uh, and coffee shop dudes, unfortunately. But anyway, moving on. Um, so with communication, there's this well-known trope that's been taught in kind of business schools and presentation classes for years and years and years, that um, communication is about 10% what you say, the content and the choice of words. It's about 20% the tone of voice that you use. Um, and it's about 70% what's called non-verbals, so body language and, and how you reinforce the message. Um, and this is often drawn up as a as kind of a way of trying to improve messaging between people in like a work environment or in personal relationships and things like that. And, and particularly when, with reference like lately to things like email and messaging in which there's no tone, right? You can't hear the audible tone um, and you certainly can't see the nonverbals. So you, you're forced to rely on the content of which we're not very good at discerning, right? And so we often get the wrong end of the stick or we, we receive something as sarcastic when it was supposed to be a genuine compliment or vice versa and things like that. And it's kind of like a peril of the modern world that this tone and nonverbal stuff is going out the window. Um, and I'm kind of a little bit afraid that this whole generation that's kind of grown up um, with content only communication with less and less tone, right? Um, podcasts and, and videos notwithstanding, at least you do get nonverbals and tone in those, right? Um, don't seem to be as astute with kind of reading the same messages and are, and are quicker to get angry at each other and and start conflicts based over these things. And what I'd like to talk about, to, talk about today is um, some of the ways that we can start to kind of get more sensitive to nonverbal communication and how Systema is, once again, just a great laboratory for kind of looking at that and playing with it. That sounds cool because you know, yeah. what, I, what I've seen uh, you know, in, in the digital world is the... Um, 
influx of things like emojis and gifs yeah which are sort of uh you know like these are these synthetic artificial like other people's emotions yeah that we're we're, we're putting together to to uh, kind of substitute for for our own sort of deep feeling into the conversation yeah i really struggle with those funny enough because i i feel a an absolute need. I can feel the lack of tone sometimes when you, when you try and craft an email well and you try and make it kind of eloquent or, and you try and make it get the message across and be polite and that kind of thing. And, and, but there's different kind of, um, there's email etiquette, right? Some people like the first time you talk to somebody, it can be, hi, Howie, just want to check in that we're, we've booked out and we're going to be doing this podcast on Thursday. If that's good, then great. Warmly, Glenn, or something like that, right? And then it seems like the second time you send a message, you don't have to say, hi, Howie, right? You're just like, yeah, it's 12 o'clock. And you don't even sign it or anything like that. There's this kind of understanding that once you've done it once and you've opened proceedings and you're fine. But an increasing number of, number of people I find don't even bother with the hi Glenn or hi, how are you? There's, no, there's nothing that, that of that front end etiquette. It's just, this is a message. This is words that you need to have in your brain. And I'm just going to give them to you. And then it's up to you to interpret these the right way. And as, especially as a British person, I think, who's like very sensitive to kind of... Um, to etiquette and how you're supposed to put yourself across and making sure that you don't create embarrassment. This is drilled into us from birth, I think, pretty much in England. Um, I find myself compelled to add little like smiley faces or things like that to the end of sentences sometimes. And yet sometimes that's frowned upon, right? People say it's not professional to put a smiley face in or something. I'm like, so I'm kind of torn between this. Well, do I want to come across as um, kind of curt and professional or do I want to come come get my message across in a way that actually reflects who I am and what I'm trying to say to people so this is a difficult thing I find and some of the emojis are just crazy as well <laughs> so, yeah I remember yeah. reading years ago a book by Jeremy Rivkin called Time Wars and it was mm. talking about how, how our perceptions of time are changing based on technology mm. he says like a lot of people who are computer programmers when they get together with each other, yeah. it's as if they're 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 interfacing with a the computer. They just like enter the next line of code. Like the computer yeah. doesn't require you to say, "Hey, computer, it's me. Right. I'm back. How's sure. it going?" Yeah, right. So you see people, you know, moving on to very um, sort of transactional yeah. communication. This was yeah. like, what's the most efficient way to get this thing across? Yeah, as you know, as if the personal didn't really matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some way we, we lose a little bit of our humanity when we start to do that. And it just creates this, this enormous opportunity for misunderstanding all the time. Because whether or not we're transmitting our intentions well, our brains are attempting to receive like those intent. They're looking for threats. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for like stories. They're looking for a backstory between me and you the whole time. Right. They're trying to interpret that. So if you're that, and that's going to happen anyway, right? We, we don't just think like computer programmers and we're happy with it. Even computer programmers don't, right? They'll get upset and depressed and angry at each other and they'll flame each other on the internet and stuff like that, right? So, um, so even if we're not, uh, even if we're not very good transmitters, we're all finely tuned receivers and, and that can start to get out. Those two things can get out of whack. And I think both of those things need to be work, worked on. We have to work on our capacity to receive and we have to work on our capacity for transmitting the right way as well right and i think a book we're both in you know in the middle of right now is the elephant in the brain yeah right and which 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 claims that we're actually what we're actually talking about is not what we think we're talking about most of the time yeah yeah let's 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 circle back to that one later on uh, to use an american phrase here because okay. um, i think yeah that's a kind of a deeper idea what i'd like to open up with a little bit is this whole idea of non-verbals and what they are so again 10 percent content the word choice the things that the words that you decide to say in the order that you decide to put them in um 
20% tone. And the tone is, I think we can cover this fairly quickly, right? It's, it's not all that difficult to go and look at tone. And there was a, a book that we mentioned a while back, which was the, um, what called Never Split the Difference. I think I see it on the shelf there. Yeah, with yeah. Chris Voss, who's is the, uh, the hostage negotiator. And when he talks about tone, he talks about the best tone to use when you're talking to people a lot of the time, especially if you're trying to persuade them of something, is this late night FM DJ voice tone. And he reminds himself of that by saying, well, I should slow my voice down because then it becomes across as more calming. You should try and use a lower pitch. Um, and in doing that, you're more likely to get your message across, right? And try and make yourself less excitable. And for me, I, I talk really fast, so I have to make a, uh, a point of doing this sometimes when I'm talking to people um, and I want them to kind of calm down or, or work in a different way. So, so that's a good one to work with as well. Um, and if you're talking to kids or somebody who's extremely agitated, you have to go even slower and even lower a lot of the time. If you go too sing-song or too choppy, um, you actually make the other person kind of psychologically agitated a little bit a lot of the time. So, mm -hmm. so tone is a fairly straightforward one, I think. Um, as long as we kind of stay mindful of it, it's not all that difficult, right? Um, and, you know, we're always telling this to our kids, mind your tone. You know, they can say the same thing. My, my son can say, yes. And I'm like, sorry. And you're like, yes. Like, yeah, that's, that's what you meant, right? That kind of stuff. If we stop doing that, if we stop holding each other accountable for that, um, then again, I think there's going to be so much capacity for misunderstanding between people when we just assume that I can say, yeah, or we allow each other to get, get away with kind of like a disrespectful tone or a tone that if you heard it on the face of it from somebody you didn't know would sound challenging or threatening or, you know, uh, arrogant or something like that. Right. So I think we have to continue to hold each other accountable for that and also to kind of be mindful of how we put it across to people as well, not to re respond to people with a bored tone. Um, and there's things, there's tips and tricks to that. You know, in sales, people talk about smile when you're on the phone and then you'll actually sound more interested. And it's true, it pulls your facial muscles into, into um, positions that allow you to kind of modulate your voice in a slightly different way. You can, somebody can hear you frowning on the phone. They absolutely can. And they can definitely hear you yawning. So that's a big one for that. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Is there anything from your like, marketing background you want to add to that to do with tone and all that kind of stuff before we move on to nonverbals? Um, well... Not so much from marketing background, but, but uh, a couple decades ago, I was working mm. for our, our mutual friend, Peter Bregman, mm. um, and he, he was a uh, boutique consulting company, and it was largely about organizational development through, yeah. th through personal development, essentially. Yeah. And we had a lot of coaches working with us who had expertise in communication. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I noticed about some of them was that their expertise in communication made it very hard to communicate with them. Hmm. Right, because I, you know, they were constantly on the lookout for the ways in which people were doing it wrong. Yeah, and and the, what they were teaching were all these techniques. Yeah, and what I what I discovered about the difference between the ones who weren't doing it so well and the ones who were doing it beautifully yeah. is the ones who were doing it beautifully, the tone became a manifestation of yeah. something deeper, of something in the body and in the intention. Hmm. So, like one of them would say, like, you know, everyone's like mirror back, be you know, ask questions, sure. yeah. right. And so someone said, like, forget all that. Just be curious. Yeah. Right. If you mm. be curious, then you'll do all those things as opposed to like worrying about my 55, 60 percent of my, you know, my tone and my body language. Like mm. how like almost like, you know, the, the user's manual for the human. Yeah. Like how would a human express curiosity and appreciation in this circumstance? Yeah. Well, you know, if we yeah. just be appreciative and curious, then it just sort of happens. Yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's an interesting point. It's a, it's a really valuable one is that if we can't stand affected communication, right? We know when somebody's trying to con us or when somebody's trying to say something that's um, 
that's dissonant with their, so if their, if their tone doesn't reinforce their body language or vice versa, then it's incongruent. And that's actually one of the ways that, you know, FBI interrogators and people like that figure out if people are lying, right? Um, they can be saying one thing and their face can be, you know, they can be a master of poker face and keeping it steely and not giving anything away with the micro expressions and that kind of stuff. Um, but if they're doing things with their hands that um, don't reinforce what they're doing with their face or vice versa, right? Or they're not making motions with their hands that you would expect somebody to make when they're making certain types of statements. And then they can be like, hmm, I'm not sure if you're lying, but you're trying to do something here. You're trying to mm -hmm. communicate with me in a specific way, which makes me suggest that you're nervous and probably not being completely open with me. And that's like one of the, uh, the key indicators that um, Joe Navarro um, in his book, um, what everybody is saying, which is uh, what I'm going to draw some of this material from now, points out is that you're not looking for one specific cue. You're looking for um, a dissonance between the way that people want you to hear what they're saying and what their bodies are actually saying. So I, I think that's an important point. And, and maybe just that commitment to a general state like curiosity unifies your mind and your body in a way that allows you to put, come across naturally instead of an affected kind of, I'm all business type way and look at my hands. I'm going to concertina them in and out like Trump when I talk and nobody does it better than me. And I'm, you know, reinforcing like a politician. Nobody trusts that. And, and I think we've got an innate suspicion of that now sometimes when we see trained speakers do that a lot. Mm -hmm. Which which yeah. speaks to the fact that, you know, when you say innate, yeah. that we do have all the machinery yeah. for both, you know, anyone who can receive can also um, transmit. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear what Sistema has to do with this. Yeah. So uh, again, yeah, 10, 13 minutes into the, uh, in, into the Sistema for Life podcast, we're coming back in with it. Um, so Vladimir often talks about... Um, learning to learning systema is a lot about learning to see right and um, that you have to learn to see what your what your uh, partner is telling you with their movement right um, and talks about how if you watch the way they walk or that you watch the way that they hold themselves that even their facial expressions and that you can tell the state that they're in and then from there you can start to exploit that or you can make them you know if they're aggressive then you can kind of use certain types of movements or certain types of um, tactics and patterns to exploit that. Um, if they're afraid, then you can use patterns to exploit that too. Um, or you might choose to go the other way and not exploit it, but actually see that somebody's agitated and then move in such a way that slows them down or calms them down. Um, but the point is that you have to be a very, very finely tuned transmitter and you have to be able to see those things first. And we talk a lot about finding tension in other people, right? Can you see where the tension is and then push it around, pull it around, strike it, that kind of stuff. And, and a big complaint that I find in new students, and I'm not even just talking about the first few weeks, but people who are a good couple of years in, is that I can't see this tension you're talking about, right? And like tension holds the body up and it moves people around and it's what allows us to push and pull. So of course there's tension, but what is this extra thing that you're talking about? What x-ray vision do you have that you can see one spot of tension in somebody's back and exploit it that I can't see? Um, and I think part of the answer to that is that it, it's not a matter of watching the entire body and staring at it anatomically and waiting for like a burst of tension to appear and, and lock and that kind of stuff. What you're doing is kind of defocusing, looking at the whole person and you're seeing their entire state um, and from there, you start to kind of extrapolate um, where the tension probably is going to be. And I think this is where the parallels with general communication um, and physical communication in a, in a kind of a conflict or you know, combat situation, all that kind of stuff comes in. Because I think people do things with their, uh, when they're agitated or they're afraid, they do things with their feet and their legs 
that they don't do if they're aggressive or if they're neutral. Um, when people are aggressive or afraid, they do things with their torso and their arms in terms of covering themselves up or shrugging their shoulders forwards or protecting the front surface of their body, the ventral surface, that they wouldn't do if they were feeling open towards you or if they're feeling confident, right? Um, and certainly the face and the eyes, there's been so much written, um, you know, all the way going back to like old samurai treaties like Hagakure and Gorin no Shou, like Miyamoto Masashi's Book of Five Rings, just entire chapters talking or entire, you know, sections talking about how the eyes reveal what it is that your opponent wants to do. And you should watch the eyes all the time. You know, in the simple sense, the eyes might pre, um, precede the direct the location of the attack, right? If somebody's looking towards a place. Or they might try and look away to try and get you to look away and, you know, watch the eyes, be careful with that. But interestingly, Vladimir says you shouldn't watch the eyes too much. They're tricky. You should defocus and watch the whole body because it's more reliable. And that's another parallel with nonverbal communication in the, in the, uh, in, in the kind of uh, interpersonal sense. Um, that Joe Navarro brings up, which we'll kind of get onto in a minute, which is that you can't trust people's faces very much because we're really good at lying with our faces, but we're terrible at lying from the neck down. So this, so this is kind of where um, I'd like to kind of get into a little bit. I think Sistema's a really good laboratory for watching people in an agitated state, partly because we put ourselves in those states on purpose. We make ourselves a little bit stressed or afraid or under pressure and we hold our breath. Um, and then you can see what people look like when they're angry or what they look like when they're afraid. And doing that again and again, hour after hour, month after month, gives you this kind of image vocabulary in your brain of what a tense, agitated or afraid person looks like. And I think we can map that onto verbal conversations and use that information to, um, to diffuse conflict or redirect conflict, um, or at least avoid it and get out of there before one starts, if you can see somebody's like exhibiting those physical patterns from the neck down. Um, in interpersonal life. Does that kind of make sense? It does. And I'm also yeah. thinking like from my childhood, yeah. um, everybody I knew was agitated and upset and, and right. you know, aggressive most of the time. What mm -hmm. I think has been valuable about Sistema is then seeing that and then seeing people relax. Yeah. Right. Because we do as much work. We, we, we get into, you know, tense states and then we relax and like, oh, so that's what Mm. A person who is free of internal conflict looks like I've never seen that before. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a vanishingly rare thing. I think it's difficult. It's difficult to attain. Yeah. Um. So what I'd like to do a little bit is talk um through a little bit of the the general body areas and nonverbal communication that Joe Navarro talks about in his book. Again, I'll stick that in the show notes. I think it's called What Every Body Is Saying. Um. And to give background, this guy was I think he's of Cuban descent, and he uh, joined the FBI at quite a young age. Um. And just showed this amazing kind of ability for being able to read people, for being able to read people's expressions, being able to read people's um, language and know whether or not they were kind of agitated, lying, things like that, and ended up becoming kind of one of the top interrogators. Um, so as opposed to Chris Voss, who I think was like a negotiator, right? He was, he was about persuading people to do things. So he was the transmitter, right? And he was trying to get those things going. But Joe Navarro was the pure receiver. He just trained himself to be like a, a ridiculously good receiver. And I think some of this was due to his upbringing and his kind of close community in, in Cuba and, and the way his family, and he kind of got used to kind of get a bit streetwise to know to avoid people, you know, relatives who would like beat him up or something like that. And then he kind of studied it a bit more formally as he went into uh, through kind of FBI training academy and other stuff like that, and ended up becoming this amazing synthesis of it. Um, and like I said, the the central point of the book is that we lie extraordinarily well with our faces, right? That we do it from a young age and we learn to do it um, very, very quickly. Um, for example, you know, you give 
uh, a child, like, uh, you know, we were just out in your back garden and you were kind of um, pulling up bits of uh, grasses and various kind of plants that you had in your back garden and saying to my five-year-old son, hey, Sean, do you like onions? You want to try some of this? It tastes like onions. Now, I happen to know that Sean either doesn't like onions or has just decided recently that he doesn't like them, even though, <laughs> even though he, he, he might do. Right? And, but for anything, so if you kind of put them near his face, he'll screw up his face in a very obvious kind of like, Bleh! I don't want to eat onions face and that sort of stuff, right? Um, or if, you know, your grandma comes around or something like that and they're like, give grandma a kiss and she slops a big kind of lipstick laden, glossy, sloppy kiss on his cheek or something like that. They'll make a screwed up face. They'll show their obvious disgust, right? Yeah. Um, at the idea or the thought of these kinds of things. Um, and as parents, often what we'll tell our kids is like, don't make that face. You know, don't, you don't do that. And, you know, you don't want to show, don't show people that you look disgusted. So we get used to lying. We get used to with our faces like eating something going, yes, it's delicious, thank you, right? And eating as little as possible before we move on or like keeping a straight face or, you know, you might stiffen up. But so there's the interesting thing. So with our faces, we get good at lying. Um, but if you watch that same person when they're eating something that they really don't like and they're trying to be polite to the host and even though it's not very nice and they're eating it anyway, um, their face might not belie their emotion, but probably their spine will stiffen. Right, and and they and they'll they'll freeze like they won't be moving very much and all that kind of stuff from the neck down. So everything from the neck down kind of betrays their face and what it is that they're trying to kind of lie with. So the first step in kind of looking at somebody and trying to figure out what it is that they're actually trying to say to you is not to look at their face at all. It's to look at their legs first, their feet and their legs, and see what positioning and and information you can gain from those. And um, then from the legs you go to the torso and the arms and how they're positioned. Um, and then you go to the hands and what they're doing, um, so-called pacifying behaviors, things that people do to calm themselves down with their hands. And then finally, you can go to the face and then you see whether or not there's congruence between what the face is doing and the rest of the body. And it's this interplay between neck down and neck up, which is most reliable in figuring out nonverbal communication. And we actually do a lot of this ourselves anyway. We've, we, I think we receive this information subconsciously. Um, we just don't kind of train ourselves to act on it very well. And I think this is a, an interesting kind of set of things to look at. Right. Well, because we're we're trained to trust the written word. Yeah. Right? The uh, the documentable. Sure. So you know, like when when our kids you know use the whatever yeah. voice, and we say check your tone, they say what tone? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So you know, like there's a transcript. Yeah. We right. can we can you know we can make we can agree that that was the word. Yeah. But we can't agree yeah. on on tone. Sure. So we, we I think we learn to discount. Yeah, a lot of our intuitions, and just I think yeah. we live in a society in which intuition is is basically, uh, you know, suspect anyway. Sure. Yeah. Relegated. Yeah. But we're bringing that back. Systema. We're trying to do it anyway. Um. So going kind of section by section, because I think this is interesting. So from the legs. So we're standing at the moment, um, talking to each other, and we're naturally facing each other. Right. Our feet are kind of pointed towards each other, and this dictates interest in each other's conversation. Right. But if I blade my body off just a little bit to the side and my left foot is now pointing towards the door and the right foot is pointing to you and we continue to talk, how do you feel now? Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit like I need to like dance okay. or like, you know, yeah. I need to entertain you. You need to bring me back into the conversation because my foot pointing, the one foot pointing away indicates that I'm kind of half out of this conversation. I'm, I'm nearly yeah. done, right? And interestingly, sometimes we can, you know, waylay somebody in the hallway or something at work and you're like, oh, hey, Bob, I just want to talk to you about that thing. If the person turns around and gives you a full frontal, like, access to his body and points both mm -hmm. feet at you, then he's like, yeah, great, Howie, let's talk about it. But if he kind of half turns and leaves one foot in the direction he was traveling and the other one comes back to you and you're like, yeah, Howie, great. Uh, what, what can I help you with? You should immediately take that as a cue that he doesn't really want to talk to you, right? And anything mm -hmm. that comes out of your face next 
It's just gonna be him thinking probably while you're talking, how do I end this conversation and get out of here? But some people are oblivious to this. I've done this, right? I, oh, I have to get somewhere, I have to get home, I have to get to my family. And they're like, can I just ask you one more question about that thing that we did in class last week? I'm not saying that I don't like to answer questions from my students, but sometimes I have to get home to my family or something else happens. And, and they're oblivious to the fact that I've gotta be somewhere, right? But that was the cue that they missed. Do you see what I mean? So that's a very, very simple one. The direction that your feet are pointing in um, deter indicates quite clearly the direction of your interest or your intent, basically. Yeah. That gets missed all the time. Because yeah. I do it all the time. Because I go to yeah. conferences and meetings yeah. and I'm having conversations that I desperately want to get out of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and almost no one ever picks up on it. No, like they I, don't. Like I, since, since reading that book, I learned to do that. Like I'll consciously yeah. uh -huh. turn a foot out to the left. Yeah. Uh -huh. And nobody ever... Yeah, they very really pick up on it. Yeah, definitely. So that's a big one. So... Bringing that back into parallels with physical conflict, um, if you square up to somebody in a physical conflict, right? If somebody um, starts a conflict and they're looking to come and grab you or punch you or something like that, right? And, and they're squared up to you face on and you square up to them, right? Um, you're immediately agreeing to have a fight with them. You see mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm like, I'm interested in this. I'm going to engage you physically and we're both going to do this. So if you're trying to say things with your face to dif diffuse the conflict and say, I don't want any part of this, so I'm really sorry I spilled your pint, uh, I think you have me confused with somebody else, whatever it's gonna be, but your feet are both pointing straight at the guy, then your feet are not reinforcing what your face is saying. The guy is basically, as long as your feet are, are, are pointing forwards, that's the dominant message, that's the 70% that completely overrides even the conciliatory tone you might be using or the, the carefully chosen words that you might be trying to use to diffuse the argument. And so one of the best things that you can do if you're trying to get out of a fight is to turn one foot away slightly and blade your body off to the side um, so that you can indicate to the guy that, look, I'm, I see you there. My one foot here is pointing towards you, so I acknowledge that you're a threat and I'm not just turning my back on you. That's like submission and, and almost a, an invitation for them to chase you or blow you down, right? So one foot is pointing towards you like, I see you, stay right there. And the other foot is pointing off to the side saying, but I'm going over here. And this is what this conversation is about, right? So it's a really key thing to understand in a physical conflict. Um, but on another level, if you want to use deception, as Vladimir does all the time, right? Instead of keeping your feet squared up to the person, you can start that way. And then when the person starts the attack, you can just literally start walking at an oblique angle, orthogonal to the, to the direction of the force in the attack when the person's coming forwards, uh, and then abruptly change direction back towards him in order to hit him in such a way that he can't even understand where the strike came from, right? If I'm standing right in front of you and I'm squared up and the fists come from the same direction that the feet were pointing, you understand exactly what happened. There was a center of force here, there was a center of balance and I, I threw some force out from it. But if I turn away and it looks like I'm going for the door and then I suddenly come back and hit you, it's absolutely mystifying. And Vladimir does this with such skill and smoothness that people don't even see what it is he's doing. And the only reason they know it works is because they're, they're on the floor or their head is ringing before they even figure out what, what just happened, right? It's very interesting. So I got a question for you. Yeah. So in both our experience, people don't notice when we blade away. Mm. And yet people always can tell, like a drunk guy at a bar can tell what your, yeah. um, what your intentions are from your feet. Mm. So that feels to me like a, a contradiction. Yeah. And that might be the extent to which the frontal lobe is engaged. Right, when somebody's trying to engage you in conversation and they're very much involved in themselves, right? They're, they're like, oh, Howie, what's really important right now is that you listen to me and you answer my question and we're doing this thing, right? They're very much in their minds and they're not in their bodies at all. Uh, it might be that when you're drunk, some of that inhibition goes away and you're a little bit kind of like more fully 
kind of unified in, in a piece. You're more relaxed mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And you, maybe your body is just relying on deeper signals. I don't know. I haven't got okay. a quick answer for that one. But, yeah. Or maybe like system one, system two of Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, yeah. It, mm -hmm. it feels like this this has to this information has to come in instantaneously. Yeah. It's it's not like you could like you know get the gestalt, you know, um, take it to the dark house of your brain, yeah. print it out, and and you know, figure it out with angles and vectors. Sure, and and I would attest that that person that's, you know, waylays you at the conference and then won't let you go, if you, instead of doing a subtle blade off to the right with your foot to indicate that you had to leave like that way, right, if you took a slight step towards them and encroached on their body space a little bit like that, they would be like, wait, 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 wait what's going on? And then you took a step back and then you kind of st took a foot off to the side. It would change the entire conversation. It would snap them back into this idea that, oh, this is a physical interaction here. There's, there's, there's a relationship going on. It's not just me talking at someone. Ah, you see what I mean? So, uh -huh. You see what I mean? Oh, nice. Yeah, interesting one. Okay, so um, so the other thing with legs, um, which is quite interesting, I think, is uh, from a seated position, you can see people a lot of the time they cross their legs over, right? Not just um, not just women, kind of keeping their legs kind of demure and crossed over one knee over the other. But blokes do it too. But we tend to kind of like rest an ankle on our knee instead and kind of splay, like man spreading, I believe they call it, and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you see people seated, um, you can look at their legs and then you can kind of see which leg is kind of forming a barrier, um, whether the leg is forming a barrier between the rest of my torso and you, or whether I've kind of opened myself up and the barrier is between, uh, the outside of my thigh is between me and somebody else or the person next to me and the inside of my thigh is towards you. And that can give you an interest to, um, can give you some indication of how much interest somebody has in you, right? And that might be romantically or something else like that, or just in the conversation and what it is you have to say. And so if somebody is kind of um, sitting next to you and you know, they're kind of sitting there and everything's all good and then you say something and, you, and you're kind of droning on and they suddenly cross their leg over, um, putting up a kind of a leg barrier, then that can be an indication that maybe you should wrap it up, right? Mm. <laughs> and that probably what you're saying is not getting across or maybe they're becoming hostile. You've said something that you didn't realize set them off in a strange way. And then that gives you a chance to kind of be like rewind what you just said. And like, what, what could I have said that they might have misconstrued there? And it gives you a chance to come back. And then interestingly, if you can win them over and say something back, sometimes you'll see that leg uncross or they'll mm. switch legs and they'll cross the legs back towards you, indicating that, yeah, you're okay, right? Or sometimes people even point their feet at you, right? They'll cross a foot, uh, leg over and point their feet. In some cultures, that's insufferably rude in Thailand and some other places like that. But here, people do it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's an interesting one with legs too. I'm not sure how immediately that one relates to combat right away. Sometimes people do step across themselves um, in order to put kind of like a leg barrier between me and you um, in an effort to kind of show that they want to disengage rather than kind of re-engage. And maybe there's a parallel there too. But in general terms, foot positioning, I think, um, and uh, what that does to angle the body to and away from people can tell you a lot about um, people's intentions and, what, and how they want to interact with you. Yeah. I mean, what I'm getting so far about the relationship between systema training mm. and communication is mm. that it's really hard to be intentional because there's so much going on. Right? Yeah. We want to say the words right. Sure. We, and, and, you know, so it's like when I, I tried to study neuro-linguistic programming. Sure. And so, yeah. I, so I was trying to, so, okay, so there's this thing about eyes, right? If they look yeah. up, they look down, left yeah. or right, and you can sort of map a person's, you know, reality map onto their eyes. A lot of that's been debunked, by the way, as well. So, it's a, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm glad I didn't spend too much time learning it. <laughs> yeah. But the point yeah. is, I was trying to, so, yeah. so, okay, I'm going to go out and have a conversation with someone and watch their eyes. Yeah. And I found that all I could do was be stupid. Right. Like, yeah. Okay, because, oh, wait, did right. your eye, yeah. right? it, was, it was simply too much circuitry, but. Sure. You know, doing sistema means becoming more aware of body yeah. and being able to use it intentionally in very mm. counterintuitive ways. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Both on the on the receiving end and on the transmitting end as well. Yeah, and I think it, like I said, it's just hours in. It just gives you enough time and practice, especially in perhaps more obvious physical contexts, right? As opposed to like the subtle sophistry of talking and communication and conversation and things like that. It gives you a chance to kind of test bed these things more obviously and then backscale them afterwards. And then it becomes more of an unconscious skill or like an unconscious competence instead of mm -hmm. something you have to concentrate on and you're staring at the guy's nose and eyes during the conversation, yeah. which frankly will just freak them out anyway. So <laughs> yeah, that's actually something that Navarro brings up in the book is like you, you should practice watching people like in restaurants, in bars, like at home, but you should do so in such a way that they don't see you watching, right? Mm. You can't be staring at them and kind of taking notes. And you, you have to go and watch them out the side of your eye. You have to take little snapshots. But it's like you can ama it's amazing what you can see if you're looking to perceive, right? Rather than, um, you know, just soak up information. You can do it that way too. Okay, so let's, let's leave the legs for a second and come on to the torso. So Navarro talks about um, the basic idea with the torso is, of course, you can... Uh, blade it away and lean away from people as well. So if you're in a seated position, if you see two people kind of angling their torsos away from each other, they're probably, you know, a married couple that's had a fight and they don't want to be talking or something like that and they're, they're not acknowledging it as an unresolved issue or they just don't like that person that much. Of course, if you lean towards somebody, it indicates an interest in them or in their conversation or that kind of stuff. So that's a fairly obvious one. But sometimes that's kind of, um, it's very subtle or we kind of are in a social situation where we don't want to lean away or something like that. And in that instance, what we tend to do is kind of protect the front of our bodies. So we'll bring our hands kind of together and we'll fold our arms across the front of our body in a, in a very kind of like a protective gesture of kind of the chest and the stomach and this ventral surface of the body where the um, squishy internal organs are pretty much unprotected. Um, or we'll do things with our clothing, like fiddle with our shirt cuffs or fiddle with kind of you know, jewelry for women, they do that kind of thing, which bring the hands in a protective way in front of the body, but in a more subtle way, right? We're basically kind of hiding the front of our body and putting up almost like a guard position, but doing it in a very, very subtle way. So those are cues to watch for with the torso and, and the arms as a, as a kind of frame. Are they putting some sort of framework between you and them? as you're talking. And that's not, arms folded is an obvious one when you're talking to somebody and their hands are just gesticulating and all of a sudden they fold their arms. Often it can be like, yeah, that's, that's, this conversation is shutting down. They're not listening to me. And then when you um, kind of apologize or you backtrack or something, sometimes their arms will unfold and they'll be like, okay, all right. Yeah. And their hands will go to their hips or back in their pockets or something else will happen um, as well. And we'll come on to hands specifically in a minute, but just as a general thing, the torso being open, the chest being open shows kind of like a, a confidence, and uh, a feeling of safety, a feeling of like, I'm happy for you to bring your chest close to my chest or your mm. arms close to my chest or expose my throat to you, right? I'm, I'm kind of bearing my belly in a sense, almost like dogs or something like, hey, here you go, it's fine. Um, whereas if you don't trust somebody, you tend not to do that. You'll either angle your chest away from them um, or you'll cover up your chest in such a way that there's always something between you and the other person, right? In, in a combative sense, this can be true too, right? If you hunch your shoulders forwards in kind of like a characteristic boxing stance and keep your arms in front of you, it shows that you're defensive and that you're ready to fight. So, the, um, so conversely, the other person, if they're looking to attack you, will be a lot more careful and crafty about the way they attack. They're like, oh, I've got to get around those arms now, right? Or I've mm -hmm. got to get around something. Whereas if you have this open kind of posture and your body's slightly bladed off and you're just, so you're keeping yourself safe and you know where the person is and you're using distance, but your, your body looks open to attack. It goads the other person into thinking that you're vulnerable. And if you know what you're doing from there, you can counterattack very, very quickly um, and end the conflict that way, right? Or if you want to diffuse the conflict, again, don't say words with your face that say, look, look, I've got no problem with you. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. And yet cross your arms over and, and look guarded, right? If you genuinely have no problem with somebody, you should gener uh, generate that feeling within yourself 
open your chest, open your body, appear warm, appear open, and then maybe you can get the other person to do the same. Right. See, this is exactly where the Sistema work comes in, because in that mm. moment, mm. that's the last thing I would normally do, sure. right? If I'm feeling frightened yeah. or angry, yeah. then, I, then I have to override that. Sure. First of all, I have to realize that that's what's going on and then yeah. make a strategic decision in that moment, yeah. which I don't see how in the world I could approach mm. without training yeah. in, in those very situations. Yeah, it's, it's not knowledge, it's training, right? You can know all this on a psychological level, on an intellectual level, and absolutely never use it, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's training. And, and interestingly, sometimes you can't bring yourself to, right? If you genuinely feel there's a threat with the other guy and you don't feel confident in your ability to kind of talk him down or calm him down, you might have to keep something between the two of you um, in a practical sense, um, what's been called by Jeff Thompson. He's like a former bouncer in the UK, has written a whole book, a lot, bunch of books on the art of fighting without fighting, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And the psychological fence, right? And I teach this in the, the self-defense workshops that I do for women. It's like, don't immediately give access to your body when somebody comes forwards, blade your body off and put the hand up. Be like, hey, stop, stay back, stay where you are, right? Don't reach out and give them your hand or don't initiate contact because that'll up the ante. But at the same time, you don't want to have your hands all drawn back to yourself in a kind of a submissive, protective way. You kind of leave the hand floating between the two of you and psychologically that creates a little bit of a barrier to action, right? And as long as you don't do it in an aggressive way where you're pointing and gesticulating at the person, you can leave it there. And bouncers are often trained to do this, what's called like the thinker, the thinker, right? They'll kind of, instead of crossing both hands and leaving them across the chest, they'll kind of, they'll put one hand kind of scratching <laughs> the side of their face and the other hand's kind of tucked under the elbow. And from there, I don't look like I'm aggressive. I, it's not like this, like a two hands up boxing. And it's not like this, like sitting back. It's kind of this neutral kind of like, really? And so you kind of affect a kind of curiosity. But at the same time, if you attack from here, this hand can come out, this hand can come out, and I can mm. attack or defend from those positions. Um, and Vladimir, again, does that in very subtle ways. You'll see him like turn off to a side if you're attacking him, and he'll kind of scratch the side of his face like um, or, or his cheekbone. Um, and from there comes a, like a, a lightning strike that you didn't even see. Or um, if, this, if, the, if the arm is there, he'll kind of move his hand very subtly into positions that are kind of parallel in terms of altitude with the knife hand or something. So he's, he hasn't touched it, but he's controlling it psychologically. He knows that you have to get around that in order to get at him. Um, so I think, again, there are kind of physical and psychological parallels in how we use the positioning of our torsos and our, and our arms in order to um, either calm somebody down or make them, uh, or make them feel defensive. We got to start yeah. YouTubing these uh, conversations. Yeah, there's definitely. A, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of physicality in, in that yeah. monologue. I think this, yeah, this one might warrant the first system of Oddcast, right? We'll try, <laughs> we'll try and uh, film one of these and show some of these positions. That might be kind of fun. But we'll throw it open to the uh, the listeners. Do you want to see this? So, if so, we'll take some time to record it because right. we'll probably have to get my friend Stokes Piercy in, and he's legendarily lazy and ghosty, and it's going to be difficult. But yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. We get to. And, I, and yeah. I love that when you said that, you turned towards the recorder. Thing, <laughs> like there's, That's where the people are. Right that's there. right. They're in there. The little homunculi just hanging out inside the recorder, waiting for me to say something. What do you think? Uh, okay, cool. Um, so that's torso. Hands. Um, so this is a really interesting one. Um, Navarro talks a lot about uh, what the hands typically do is uh, what they'll move and they'll reinforce your speech to an extent, right? Um, and obviously this is very, very obvious in Italians and, and cultures that bah, 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 and the hands are just flying all over the place while they're arguing and they're very passionate kind of people. Um, but most people do this to some sort of extent, right? If they care at all about something, they're not just going to talk at you with their hands in their pockets. If their hands are buried in their pockets or behind their back, usually it's because they're trying to stop their hands from moving. Like this is almost like they, they're nervous or they're not sure what they're gonna say next. And they're, and they're trying to basically kind of um, 
pacify themselves by kind of sitting on their hands or stuffing them into a pocket and making them behave themselves. It's almost <laughs> like they don't want them to give away too much kind of this way. And there's some very specific things with the thumbs, interestingly. Like if you put your hands in your pockets and your thumbs are exposed, that's okay. That's kind of like, well, I still have a capacity to whip these out and grab things and grab you or something like that. So that's just like, yeah, this is fairly relaxed. But if you're the sort of person who puts their thumbs only in your pockets, that's a very nervous gesture. That's just like a, a weird kind mm. of like, oh, I'm just submissively putting. You see teenagers do this sort of, a lot, that kind of thing, right? It's a very nervous kind of um, gesture. And there's the other one, the, the kind of the George W. Bush kind of both thumbs kind of inside the top of the belt loop and then fingers point straight down, framing the genitals, which is like a faux kind of dominance signal. Oh. Kind of like, look at this, check this out, right? I'm so dominant that I can just hide my thumbs and point to my dick, right? Pretty much <laughs> that kind of thing. So that's a very interesting kind of thing on there. So, um, so the hands will, sometimes they'll take specific positions and there's also like steepling and there's like the cutting the air and there's the mark my words and look, you know, and all that kind of stuff where people reinforce their words. Again, these affectations can look really fake if they're, if they don't look real when politicians do them too much or TED Talks. Sometimes I see overcoached people in TED Talks doing that and I'm like, oh, it just makes me cringe, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, but more generally, if the hands are moving in a very animated way when you're talking to somebody and then all of a sudden they stop moving or all of a sudden they hide them, that's a signal. There's, that's a signal of sudden discomfort. You've made them freeze, right? Or conversely, if they were frozen and they become more animated all of a sudden and they're kind of jiggling all over the place, that's a signal too, right? And Navarro talks about how these postures and these tendencies actually uh, correlate to the directly to the sympathetic nervous system states of freeze and fight and flight right and um, so for example freezing is like hiding in plain sight sitting on your hands hunching your torso over making yourself as small as possible in front of somebody and mm. um, just kind of hiding in the midst of the conversation and um, fighting is splaying out your elbows that kind of arms akimbo uh, cop mm. entering the room kind of posture right um, and uh, that is uh, dominance. Right. Uh, that's it makes, like, makes you bigger. Yeah, it's basically like a, a snake hooding, you know, making its face look bigger by flaring out its hood, yeah. or a cat arching up its yeah. back to make itself look bigger than it actually is. It's, that's our equivalent, or a bear standing up on its hind legs. It's, it's those same kinds of things, right? It's trying to make ourselves look a little bit bigger. And that sends a signal. Right? In the 80s, they trained executives to do this, like, yeah, it's power signaling, and you want to do this. And now we just rec recognize anybody that does this is a douchebag immediately. We're just like, we don't want to hang out with people who make power signals on purpose, right? It's just, it's just exhausting, terrible. Um, but anyway, so, Sometimes we'll take on these, these direct postures. More commonly what the hands do is what he calls pacifying behaviors. So as you feel nervous um, or you don't believe quite what you're saying um, or you just don't like the direction that the conversation is taken or you fear an attack, um, you'll start to kind of scratch or kind of caress parts of the body that are very um, well innovated with nerve endings. So maybe you'll rub the back of your neck. Um, maybe you'll rub your palms on your thighs if you're seated, seated down, what he calls the palm cleanser as if your palms are all sweaty. They're not, but you kind of feel like you want to do that. And this is just to stimulate the nerve endings in the fingertips and in the hands and in the back of the neck. Uh, people bite their fingernails, right? They chew their lips. My wife tugs on her ear, something that I call consulting the oracle. Whenever she's like stressed out and thinking about something, she'll kind of you know, fiddle with her earring like indefinitely. Women do a lot of fiddling with jewelry. Men do a lot of fiddling with clothes. Um, sometimes we'll rub our nose. Sometimes we'll kind of rub our eye, kind of hide our eyes this way. These are all kind of very, very sensitive areas of the body. And it's exactly the same as stuffing like a baby, uh, like a pacifier in a baby's mouth, right? It's just sensitive lips and they're like, and they, and they basically feel calmed by this contact on this sensitive part of the body or stroking somebody's mm. neck, right? You're just doing it to yourself. You're literally trying to calm yourself down in the middle of an impending conflict or a nervous situation. Um, so again, you can see this sometimes in 
fights, right? People are kind of twitchy and they'll kind of, you know, uh, kind of rub themselves or scratch their back or do something like that in, in the middle of things. Um, and if, if that's what's going on, you can kind of read it in a situation and, uh, and start to make use of it. But this one, I think, is particularly useful for conversations when you see that somebody's agitated or nervous. And you can even look at the frequency of these. Like if somebody is tugging on their ear once every 30 seconds, that might be fine. If they suddenly up it to once every five seconds, maybe you just said something wrong, right? Or maybe you said something that worried them or irritated them or angered them. So these are these pacifying behaviors are pretty fascinating, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed, so I don't think that I like do that all the time as I go about my day, like constantly mm. scratching itches that don't yeah. exist. But I notice when I sit down to meditate, mm. I will start magically getting itches. Mm. Yeah. Right, so that's probably yeah. you know, a similar thing. Like I'm, I'm sitting down and not distracting myself with busyness or other things and then all, sure. the, all of the demons start coming up yeah. and when I resist the scratching, mm. like the itch really starts to intensify and, yeah. mm -hmm. and then eventually it goes away. Like it, I feel like it was phantom. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, and so you just feel this need to pacify yourself, right, as you start yeah. to work. Yeah, I had an interesting one and something else I pointed out, if you've had an old injury, you'll, you'll like caress it. So, you know, I mean, it's like the old man sitting on the back porch like, caressing his knee when the you know pressure changes or something like that in some other ways but um so for me i had uh, like a couple of back injuries when i did aikido and like my lower right side of my back um tends to tighten up when i get stressed out right? it's like i'm protecting the lower um, lower side of my back my lumbar spine from another injury right mm -hmm. and more recently i like cracked a sternal cartilage between my uh, chest bone and my rib um this way and, and i'll tend to kind of protect that a little bit i've noticed sometimes if i'm under if multiple attackers in class and there's a bunch of people going in i'll fold that side of my body as if i don't want to get hit in it right mm -hmm. um so this is very interesting and, and after i had that injury and i was up at hq vladimir actually kept um coach me to lead with the injury be like expose it to people you have to learn how to you know work around that and get the fear out of that kind of thing um but i didn't realize that i did the back scratching thing like when i'm kind of running out of things to say or i'm nervous or i'm not sure if people are still listening to me or taking me seriously i scratch my back um and i wasn't i wasn't fully aware of that until i recorded um for this uh, jason bourne challenge thing a couple of years ago i remember i recorded like 30 videos oh. so that you could do like a five minute sistema video workout per day right mm -hmm. and i just put it on there um for people to do along um and by day three um one of my students brian black was just like what's with the black back scratch like every time i opened it i was like okay hi day five and uh right at the beginning i would scratch <laughs> my back once and then maybe i'll do it once more and then once i got into the groove of talking to the camera I, I, I got on with it it disappeared but i went back through them and every single day for 30 days even after i knew and had been told that I was doing it. Uh -huh. And it just became an ongoing thing. Like uh, Blackaby would just text me right after the, the clip had posted and be like, back scratch. And I'd be like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> and, and I suddenly realized that I was doing it. And I even caught myself doing it in class the other day. So it's a, it's a very real thing, right? We have these tendencies, these habits um, towards pacifying ourselves and protecting parts of ourselves that we feel were injured at least once when we're in situations that make us a little bit agitated. Right. And again, that's such a, that's such a challenge a in, <laughs> in communication, to, yeah. especially when we know we're doing something. Yeah. Then it, it can even get, we, it can get worse. Yeah. Right. So a, couple, a month ago, Peter Bregman gave me some feedback on my podcast, mm. and he said, "You say ah and um too much, mm. and it takes away from your authority." Mm. And I was like, "Oh, um." Uh. Uh, <laughs> and I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to not do that anymore." Yeah. And that's gone out the window. I've done maybe 20 interviews since then. Right. I haven't thought about it once. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that if I think about it, I'll just get really weird. 
Yeah. Do you need to do like practice interviews with people who don't care. Yeah. Or you can just meticulously go through and splice out every um and ah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. I did that for the first few podcasts and now I'm like, yeah, people will just have to get used to it. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Sne- yeah. Sneezes, farts, it's all, it's all good at the end. Yeah, that, it's funny, that, that what's called meta-language and that's coming back to kind of content and tone a little bit, those, those little bits that we put in between words to fill the empty space that we're nervous about leaving. That's essentially what it's for, right? And people do it in different ways. Some of them can be bizarre. I did presentation training at the Science Museum when I was uh, uh, training there to present science shows and stuff when I, when I was younger. Well, I was doing my master's degree, I worked there and you know, blew things up and froze things in liquid nitrogen and stuff like that. Immensely fun job. Um, but while we got trained, they videoed us and they played things back and they critiqued us. And um, the the instructor for that course said, yeah, you've actually got a really nice presentation style, you're very engaging, you look at everybody in the audience and you include everybody and your, your tone goes up and down and things like that, that's all good, but you have a weird verbal tick, you say sort of thing. I said, sort of thing? And she's like, yeah, at the end of a sentence, like when you feel like you're trailing off and you weren't quite sure about what you said, you say sort of thing. Um, and I'm like, really? And she goes, yep, and the other one is bits and pieces. You say bits and pieces at the end of things. And I'm like, that's, that's preposterous. I've never even heard myself say that. And then she's like, here's the tape. And there I am presenting the rocket show. Hi, welcome to the uh, rocket show. We'll be talking about Newton's three laws and uh, what we can do with that and uh, bits and pieces. And we'll be moving on and I'll need some volunteers to kind of come up and help with experiments sort of thing and, uh, and and it went on for ages and I was just stunned it was like watching somebody else uh-huh. or somebody maybe had doctored me and I was going fake news or something this was in the era before fake news but still it, it looked so weird it looked like somebody else had possessed me every five seconds and injected that word in but I just didn't realize that you pick these things up and there it is sort of thing and you've got these bits and pieces right? <laughs> um, that overlay over your language so it isn't it is important i think to pay attention to those but it's, you, it's, you can't get too hung up on them it's also interesting that probably other people had witnessed that and were in sort of positions where it would have been appropriate to tell you but they, yeah. didn't, they didn't notice oh i would let it slide for years yeah because <laughs> I, I notice all the time that yeah. um you know my wife and i'll be watching something or listening to something and she'll say i can't stand how that person exhales Hmm. I'm like, oh, I'd never noticed that. And then I started noticing it. I'm like, oh, I can never listen to them again. Yeah, I've got even really good podcasters. There's a, like Sam Harris, I quite enjoy his podcast. And he's, he talks a lot and then, and then talks a lot more. And then, and there's this very distinct, it's like he's doing meditation breathing in the middle of his podcast. He's like taking really like serious things. Right. And, uh, and Joe Rogan always sounds wet and about to throw up to me. He's like, <laughs> he always sounds, I don't know whether he just constantly is chugging protein shakes or something yeah. throughout the thing, but he just always sounds like he has a, a frog in his throat. And he's going but he does do three hour podcasts so fair enough he might get a bit dry right. so, anyway um so coming back to the the ways that we can kind of um use this so we've talked a lot about kind of um receiving and becoming more finely tuned receivers to other people's uh, body language and how that can help us both in uh, kind of combative situations and in kind of verbal ones as well um, and i think there's there's a lot more that we can do also in practicing being effective transmitters and and that's something that's practice less in um in systema until you kind of until you learn what you're looking for right um so on a very basic level we counsel people all the time in systema to breathe to make sure that you're breathing and you're breathing continuously um we counsel people to keep your structure typically meaning keep your spine straight and to stay in some sort of motion to have some sort of movement um and to relax as much as possible and interestingly all four of these things have a bearing on how on the message that you communicate to somebody, right? If you stop breathing and hold your breath, it typically, or you breathe very shallow, it's just coming into the top of your chest 
or into your collarbones and not the rest of your body, it shows the other person that you're nervous or mm. that you're preparing to do something. Like you're holding your breath because you're concentrating something's going to happen. So that telegraphs to your opponent that something's about to happen or that they've got you trapped, right? It's a signal. So you're either frozen or you're, um, you're trapped in your thoughts because you're about to do something. And either way, you're giving them information that you don't want to give them. Um, and if you want to try and diffuse a fight, um, restarting breathing is one of the most important things that you can do. Start to breathe fully into your entire body, relax yourself. Um, and this is because um, on a neurological level, what starts to happen is entrainment. Whatever behaviors and shapes that you show, you display to people, other people start to mirror them, right? Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of talk about mirror neurons and their you know, role in this and all that kind of stuff. But on a, on a very basic level, um, if I'm breathing short and tight, after a while, you'll start to breathe short and tight. If I'm breathing long and deep, you'll start to breathe long and deep, like on a very simple level, like that way. And the same thing is true for freezing. If I tend to re respond by freezing and not moving at all, then it will tend to make the other person more static and staccato, and it will freeze them in place. It will make them more um, wary about approaching, so it's gonna be harder for you to kind of control them and take them down, um, or to kind of diffuse a conflict. Um, so the movement, actually relaxes both yourself and the other person, staying slightly in constant motion, shifting your weight from one foot to the other, as long as it's not hypnotic, it might becomes a, like an annoying metronome, can put the other person at ease. So you can relax yourself with the movement and then you can entrain movement in the other person and, and get them to relax a little bit more as well. Structurally, if you flinch, obviously, and your, and your spine comes out of position, you're either showing that you're um, aggressive and, um, or defensive and protecting yourself, um, or again, that you're frozen and um, or that you're preparing to do something. Whereas if you keep your spine straight, upright, and your chest open, as we talked about, that solves a lot of these problems, and the other person tends to open up. I just straightened up, and then you just straightened up while we were talking then, right? So we tend to entrain each other. And relaxing is a general thing. Often that means we're dropping some of these signals that we'd otherwise be giving away, right? And scratching our faces, or like holding our arms tightly to our body, shoulders uh, coming up to protect the ears a little bit, blading ourselves away. If we just think relax, often all of those communication signals drop away at the same time and then the other person starts to relax too. So I think it's very, very critical in Systema that we don't just do the work and go through the motions and, and make the focus of the drill, I'll take the guy down. Um, and one aspect of what we talked about in previous weeks of working on yourself as you work is this idea of like how much information am I giving to the person, right? And what information are I giving to them? The, the first step is probably just becoming aware of the excess information you're giving away and trying to cut that down and trying to get down to a kind of like a neutral, I'm not gonna give you any more information that I want to kind of thing. And then you can start to play with giving people the wrong information, right? Or giving people information that will help calm them down or, or agitate them if you want to or do whatever you want to. But until you have some awareness of what your body's doing by accident, you can't help, you can't hope to do anything on purpose with that. Does that make sense? You, you're, you're giving them mixed messages otherwise. Yeah, well, it comes yeah. back to when you asked me at the beginning about, you know, relevance to my marketing career yeah and there's there's some but there's much more to the relevance to my sales career which was mm. much less successful because i didn't do it very much i liked marketing because i didn't have to deal with any of this stuff yeah but what i learned was that sales is a game of confidence whoever's more confident wins mm. and what you're saying so you know if, if you're if people entrain with each other mm. and you're relaxed and the other person is agitated mm. why wouldn't you just become agitated and the person mm. who's sort of more sensitive and in control and trained yeah. and aware yeah. is the one who gets to dominate the tenor of the situation. Yeah, you set the tone, basically, yeah. The, the, you, and I think uh, Martin Wheeler and other people have kind of said it in a, in a different way, saying that either you control your tension or your tension controls you, right? And I think the same is true of communication. Like either you control the messages that you're sending out 
or you just send random messages and then that that creates effects in the conversation or in the interaction or the conflict that you didn't intend but then you can't complain that it didn't go the way you wanted it to because you didn't even try to control what you were putting out makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah. They're generally not random. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. They're generally deleterious. Yeah, it's being it's messaging direct from your limbic system to the other person's instead of from you know your cerebral cortex or places that you might want to think from instead. <laughs> that way. So, so yeah, so that's pretty much it. I just want to kind of have a, an overview of kind of how Systema makes us more attuned and aware of how we communicate, um, both in terms of making us better observers and listeners and better transmitters and better kind of relays of information as well at the same time. Is there anything else you want to stick on the end of that that you've noticed in your training or aspects that have improved or changed since you've been training? Um, well, the main thing that's improved, I haven't done any of this stuff overtly and I read Joe Navarro's book seven years ago and I, ha I couldn't mm. remember a single thing except a couple of the photographs yeah. until we just had this conversation. Mm. Um, but what has helped me in, in life in general but in communications is noticing when my thermostat's going up. Yeah. Right, so simply noticing, oh, I'm becoming agitated here. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a professional coach, yeah. that is crucial mm. because it's so easy for me to impose my agenda yeah. on a coaching client and it's completely inappropriate. Like, mm. I mean, I'm here for them, not, oh, that they, they you know, binged or, or didn't do something that they said they were going to do and now I'm disappointed mm. and now I'm feeling it in my body and that tells me, okay, so now I'm taking this personally and I need them to do this thing right so that I can feel okay about myself. Yeah. And now they should be paying me. I, I should mm. be paying them because they're giving me therapy. <laughs> so, so I need to yeah. you know, nip that in the bud. And so there yeah. are times when I've actually you know, said, I need, to, you know, I need to reschedule this mm. or I need to take, let's, let's breathe for a few seconds together yeah. just to be clean yeah. in communication. I think what we're, what we're talking about here is sort of transparency and cleanliness for the most part. Yeah. Right. There's very few situations in life when we're going to like Sistema is like 99%, you know, love and peace and butterflies mm -hmm. and 1% aggression and diffusion and fighting. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably the way it is with communication in general. These are, yeah. these are all tools to get closer yeah. and to be more transparent and honest and authentic. Yeah. And, and a very small percentage of the time to uh, dissemble and, and, you know, manipulate, manipulate. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Check your gauges. It's always, it's always good advice, no matter what you do in life. So, well, thanks for taking the time, Howie. Uh, I'll see you again next time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can share it with your friends online, you can write a review on iTunes, or you can support us directly with a monthly contribution of $1, $5, whatever you can afford. To become a Systema for Life patron, please visit www.patreon.com slash ncsystema. Any and all contributions are very much appreciated. They help us to keep the podcast going and to keep it advertising free. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training.